You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So what's up, Jay? I've got a thought on teamwork and leadership. So on Saturday, my boys are playing soccer, right? They're on two separate teams. One team, he frustrates me. I I have not watched a full... No, I watched the first full game. I can't watch the other games because... Not because of the players. They're just little kids, right? Yep. But the coach, his apathy, his lack of drive, his poor communication. And his... My son's team, my younger son's team is 0-6. Okay. My other son's team, good coach, solid guy. We know him personally. He is an ex-college soccer player. Okay. And so he knows the game. He communicates well, but he got the league is just like they they stuck all the first year players on one team. And and we're just we lack skills. So yeah. last week we played it was really interesting. We played the best team in the league and we did decently against them. We they have this one kid who I look at him and he's like He's going to be playing varsity soccer in 10 years. Yeah. And or college as a freshman. at least. Yeah, as a freshman, that type of thing. So we still got beat like six or seven, nothing, but they're just pounding other teams like double digits. So I feel like we, it was a win for us. We covered the spread, if you will. And another dad, we were walking away. And this dad I know from way back, he's a blowhard. I don't know. He's just, he just has lots of opinions. And most of the time, they're not great. So I said, boy, tough game, but I was really proud of the kids because they held off this really good team. He said, yeah, that's the problem with this league. That team is stacked. If they knew what they were doing, they would spread them out over other teams. And how are the kids going to grow if they keep beating the the snot out of everyone every year, every game? Well, yeah, you never learn anything by failing. Gosh. So so he's got a point. Yes, maybe. No one. I I grew up on the Mighty Ducks. The okay. Hawks are deliberately like stacking the league, redrawing the boundaries, trying to get all the best players on their team because they just want to win, 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 win. Mm-hmm. So I'm sympathetic, but yeah. I was also on the team that lost most of the time when I was growing up playing soccer. Sure. Yeah. And clearly it's made me an incredible person. <laughs> and a great hockey player. So I don't know. I just, there's two schools of thoughts. Like for him, I go, I, I didn't say anything back. I just said, okay, bud, we'll see you next week. But there is something to being, because I've been on losing teams and it stinks and you just want to quit. You don't want to finish the season. You barely want to finish each game. And I've been on winning teams and winning is contagious and so is losing. Snapping this over into the business or life world. I do think that, what's that saying? You're the average of your five closest friends or, yeah. And I do think when you're around people that are skilled, certainly, okay, so I'm at a new church now. We've been here two years and the level of musicianship is just, well, they employ like literal professional musicians and then they have a mix of professional musicians and volunteers like myself. And I feel like I've doubled my skill at bass in the last two years playing with this crew because the professionalism, the consistency, and it's just more fun. It's just fun. And so I was thinking about that. And before I criticize this other dad, I was thinking, what do we do? Do we take like in in a company that may be struggling, do you just get rid of the bad players? They're okay. Yeah, okay. Stick them on the sidelines or something or rotate them in and out. Or do you bring in all rock stars? And rock stars are more expensive. And so, yeah, it's an interesting discussion. 
at least a mental like exercise I've been going through, I'm going to lean towards you want to stack your teams. That's what you want to do. You want to stack your company and and look for diamonds in the rough and bring them up, but be really selective. I don't know. What are your thoughts on all that? Well, so I, I played soccer all growing up and there's a very big distinction between individual sports and team sports. And there are pros and cons to each. One of the pros of an individual sport is if you do the work, you're the one who gets to act and make decisions. Whereas on a team, your teammates can let you down. Yeah, You can be the one who doesn't get the ball right at the buzzer mm-hmm. and you're confident you would have made it and the other guy doesn't. Or the classic example in soccer is you get a game that goes to PKs at the end and you hit yours and two other guys on your team kick it over the crossbar and you lose. Right. And you're just like, guys, I did my job. Yeah. <laughs> I hustled for 90 minutes plus stoppage time and I hit my PK and you didn't hit yours. Come on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is you can be the one who lets the team down. And that's a whole different kind of bad feeling. When you go out by yourself and you get beat. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I was swimming and I came in fifth out of eight people. And the guys who were ahead of me, they beat me. Yeah. It wasn't close. I wasn't in contention. I couldn't have shaved a meter or two here or there and caught them. Like it was just, I got beat. Yeah. But I'm trying to think. I recall a quote, I think it was from Michael Jordan, it, but it could have, it was, I'm pretty sure it was an NBA player, but he basically said, there are two kinds of players when it comes to the last play of the game, guys who want to have the ball and guys who desperately want to not be the one who has to have the ball. Right. And interestingly, personally, I tend much more to be the latter. When, when push comes to shove and it's totally clutch, I I had a formative experience in high school of being the one who missed a shot that would have changed the game Mm -hmm. and the sort of crushing weight of everybody was watching me. My whole team was counting on me and I whiffed it. (laughs) It's like, I don't ever want to be in that position again. Now in life, you rarely get examples that are that pure and singular. But sometimes you do, and they're either amazing or they absolutely suck. Yeah. They're completely demoralizing. And on the question of whether or not surrounding yourselves with rock stars is the right approach, I think a lot of that depends on age. So I've got a couple of kids playing soccer. So for context, how old are your sons who are playing? Seven and 10. Okay. Basically the same age as my two kids, my two boys who are playing. And when you're... At seven-year-old age, you're not playing full fields. You're not playing full-size goals. You're often not playing actual keepers. You're playing like four-on-four or five-on-five on on a reduced field with a reduced goal and simplified rules. You don't have all this. And some of these kids don't even know they're playing. They're (laughs) out. They're dressed up and they're standing on the grass. But go ahead. So my youngest son has a very good coach. And our area has a pretty solid from young age up soccer program that's available to all ages, five or six and up. And pretty much no American youth soccer league is anything like what the youth soccer leagues are in Europe or in places in South America. Like 
if you're in Germany and you want to make it to the Bundesliga, there's an enormous series of things to go through. And by the time you're 10 or 12, like the die is cast. You're either on track to get there or you're not and you can't. And I don't particularly like that sort of approach. I don't think my, I don't have any aspirations to have any of my kids be professional athletes. At this point, I don't think any of my kids have aspirations to be professional athletes. But certainly, if a kid really wants to be a pro athlete, then I would want to surround that child as early as possible with people who are more advanced in every way. People who have a stronger mental game, who have a stronger conceptual and strategic game, who have a stronger physical game, who can run harder, longer, faster, who can hustle more and beat him to the ball over and over and over because he has to learn that as he grows up, he is always going to be in a league with people who are bigger fish than him. Mm-hmm. And he can hold his own there. But if he slows down and stops working, he's going to fall completely behind. Yeah, that's right. But in a youth soccer league of seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old kids, a lot of it is just about learning the basic coordination and skills of handling a ball, mm-hmm. learning how to communicate with your teammates, learning how to take instruction from your coach in real time on the field and start to develop game awareness. Yeah. And none of those things really depend on you having great teammates, although great teammates help mm-hmm. when it comes to communication and passing, getting to a point where you're starting to run more strategic plays on the field. If, you're, if everybody else on the team is out to lunch, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. But- you can still learn an enormous amount, even if your team isn't great. So, so I guess it's fair to say at a younger age, you want good instructional coaches at an older I, age, both. Yeah. So the experience we had last year, maybe it was two years ago, when my older son was at the younger level, was he had completely novice volunteer coach who had not played soccer. Just didn't understand the rules, didn't know the game, hadn't played. Mm -hmm. And I was only able to attend a handful of practices in one or two games that spring season. So I was not in a position to volunteer as a coach. I couldn't fit it into my schedule. But even with very little experience ever coaching soccer, Mm -hmm. as, as someone who had played soccer for years, I would have been head and shoulders above this other volunteer coach just in terms of understanding the basics of the rules and giving my kids some simple drills to work on every practice to work on trapping, dribbling, and passing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, the only sport that I do really is jujitsu, and that's a solo sport. Right. When you go out on the mat, you get beat or you beat somebody. Yeah. And it is kind of nice. What I like about jujitsu is it's time and points and submissions, which means you can be down. You can be down the entire match. And in the last 30 seconds, you can reverse it and win. Mm -hmm. And so there's always this sudden death risk in both directions that you can come from behind. It's not like, oh, baseball, the bottom of the ninth, you're down by 12 runs. It's over. There's no way to ring the bell, hit the bullseye and, and overturn the game. And I like that jujitsu still allows that, that the way that it's structured is if the match makes it to time, 
Whoever has more points wins. However, the match can end at any time with a submission. And that means even if you're dominating, if you get cocky and you get lazy, you can lose in a split second. Mm-hmm. And if you're the underdog and you're losing and you're getting ground into the mat, if in a moment you see an opportunity, you seize it with all the strength you have left and you pull it off, you can still win over somebody who was up on points, eight, 10, nothing on you. Yeah. Man. That doesn't happen to me a lot. I'm normally the guy who gets behind on points and stays there till the time runs out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I'm trying to extract, I, I suppose, like th- business principles team? that you can apply to life in this. Because I would say that me playing high school and uh, baseball through college, good teams I was on, they were either fun, like my high school baseball team, I played four years straight with them, same guys. Yep. And then- I played like all different rec leagues or little league. It just, those weren't fun because I didn't have relationship with those people. Yep. Most of the time we weren't good. I played in a winter league game that we were all new to each other and we crushed everyone in the league. That was fun, but it doesn't really stand out. But I would say that like, well, you open any leadership book and it's always going to say that the team wins or loses, rises or falls by the coach. Or yeah, there's players like you put a LeBron James on a, a five-man sport team like basketball, he's going to dominate. It's disproportionate to the number of players. But when you have 11 men on a football field or one batter versus one pitcher, it's very much a team sport, but it's individualized. Yep. Yeah. For me. And plus baseball is a, it's a sport of failure. Great hitters fail seven out of 10 times. Yeah. That's, that's wild. There aren't that many sports where the average at the highest end is so low. Right. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. the, the other games that I play, like when it comes to games, I like chess and I play disc golf. Both of those are individual sports. Right. Yeah. You can play doubles in disc golf and that's really fun. Doubles is a hoot and the rules are a little bit different because you basically play, you each throw a drive and then you play from the best lie and then you mm. throw an upshot and you play from the best lie. And there's a whole different kind of strategy and fun to that game because your teammate has the opportunity to save your bacon if you make a bad shot. Mm -hmm. And if you make a great shot and your teammate hasn't thrown yet, they can just go for it. They can full send it, try to win it, go for the Hail Mary because you've already got a solid shot in the bag. And if theirs turns out to be trash, no problem. And so you you can have a lot of fun playing certain kinds of things way more aggressively in doubles because you've already got a good drive right. to play from. Well, so the you risk can just, has been mitigated. Yeah. There's no downside. Yeah. You've hedged your bet and just go for it. Yeah. 90 feet away, you can see the basket. Your partner made a great layup. You're going to have an easy putt if you play from his lie, but you can go ahead and just try to run that from mm-hmm. 90 feet and just crash the chains because if you miss and you skip and you go 50 feet long, doesn't matter. How about this for a parallel in machining? Customer ordered 100 parts. You nailed 100 parts. They're great. You still have 20 pieces or 10 pieces left over. Hey, let's push some feeds and speeds. We'll never use this end mill again. It's reached end of life. Let's see how hard we could uh, push this thing and and machine and then extract that data. That's what I would do. If if we had time, we would push it. Because I've done that. When we were developing the Rotovice, I said, okay, buckle up. I'm going to break a tool today. And they were laughing and 
I was serious, you know, okay, well, we don't know this material. This was back in 2015, 16. We don't really know this great a cast iron well. Push it 100, 150, 200 inches a minute. And I think we got up to like 450 or 500 inches a minute and it was ripping. And I said, okay, just now let's try the longevity. So it's like, hey, we're doing well, we're hitting hard, we're scoring points, but is this sustainable over time? Are we going to drop out the third round? Are we going to get killed in the fifth or sixth inning or the last 20 minutes of the game? It's the kid who takes off at a hundred meter pace in a one mile race. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, a quarter mile from now, I'm going to pass him and he's going to be dying. So, so you know what frustrates me about that? There are certain content creators that show that part of the sprint where they go, oh yeah, you can push this tool. Yeah, but for how long? You haven't shared how long you can push that tool until it goes boom. <laughs> so yeah, it was after exactly probably- what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I'm being super vague. No, but uh, for me, it was like, okay, well, just we're not going to go over 500. I'm satisfied with that. And once the cutting edge started to wear, the tool load went up, the, I, I suppose the deflection also went up and then pow, or boom, I should say, went the tool. And I go, great. Okay. We were cutting at like 200 inches a minute. Let's say 150. I ran it at 500. Why don't we split the difference? Let's aim for 250, 300, see how that does. And those are the feed rates to this very day because we just needed to break a tool Like I always tell the guys, if we have a mistake that costs us money, I think there was one that was kind of significant. Oh yeah. So we went with a new heat treater. Okay. This is so bad. And we put on the PO, when you quench the bars, rack them and quench them vertically. They will not warp or they'll warp less if you quench heat treated bars vertically. And we should have been more specific, like do not put them flat or horizontal in a basket. And I probably should have called the manager saying, hey, we're sending you new parts. Should have done all that. So we'll own it. And sure enough, these parts came back looking like bananas. So I'm thinking, okay, well, they didn't follow directions. And were they already machined? No, no. Plain bars? No, that was a good thing. It's They were round bars and they go into the lathe. They actually make the shafts for the row device. Okay. So it won't fit in the spindle liner. The spindle liner straight, so it wouldn't go yeah. in. So we can't use them. So went back to them. Hey, it looks like you guys didn't do this right. Oh, we did. I don't know. I'm sorry. And we're going. We want to give you business. Our main heat treater does this perfectly. They've been doing it great for years. Why is it that the first time you do this, are you sure there's no way that you could have gotten it wrong? No, no, no. We we got it right. Okay. Can you straighten them? Uh, yeah, but that'll cost you extra. End of discussion. We are not paying you to fix your mistake that you own up, own up to. So we went to another, there's all these little ancillary industries around here in Southern California. And so we went to a straightener. There's a shop that all they do is they straighten material. And wow. they, they said, okay, yeah, no, we can definitely do this. Uh, let us do one. Since you're new, let us do one as a sample. You pick it up. If you like it, let us know. So they did it. And then my guy, Jerry went out there. He looked at it. Yeah, it looks good great. All right, run them. And I think we had something like 30 or 40 bars. Well, they billed us and it was $3,000 for straightening. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, I don't remember what spec we gave them like straight within 10 thou or something over 36 or 48 inches. They said, that's hard. And I'm going, but I I don't know that. Like we've never paid for straightening. Is there anything you can do? Like this is, this is egregious. And he said, look, I, we, we got you good material. I said, look, the material raw, 
raw is probably eight or 900 bucks. Mathematically, this doesn't work. Like I am going to pay you, but is there anything you can do? And so they said, no. And I went, all right. So I came back and I told the, the team that, well, we got good material by sending it to a new vendor, which we under-communicated. We didn't follow through. And then we went to another vendor that kind of was in it more for the, the dollar up front rather than the long-term relationship. And hey, I, that's fine. We asked you to do it. We didn't come to the realization that you were going to give us a price per it wasn't per bar. It was like how much time they spent on each bar. So one bar, they might get lucky, hit it a couple times straight. Another one, they might take 45 minutes on it. Oh. So we owned it. And I told the guys, they were like, like everyone was sick. And so I said, look, guys, to my understanding, none of us went out and got expensive college degrees in metallurgy. We just learned a ton of information and it cost us $3,000 that's cheaper than one metallurgy heat treating class per semester. We're good to go. Pay it, move on, but yeah. document it. So that was one of those things that really turned it around from the perspective. So I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying curious. to uh, go ahead. Do you have standard work or standard procedures when it comes to onboarding any new vendor? Well, certainly that would have been an educational process where we do. Okay. But when we spec it out, how deliberate do we have to be? Like if we got a PO, if we were a job shop and someone said, we need it done exactly like this. And they followed up and said, Hey, we just want to make sure I might be like, Oh no, no, we got it. We're a quality shop. We're good to go. Yeah. Borderline annoying. So I don't want to be annoying, but good le leaders over communicate. They also hold people to accountability too. So. so I'm thinking about this because I'm in the process right now today. I just placed an order for a bunch of materials we don't normally buy mm -hmm. with a new vendor we haven't worked with before. And we're going to be machining some parts for a third party. The design work is basically done. We've got models and specs and they just needed grades of material we don't normally use. Mm -hmm. And the customer we're working for is like, hey, here are two vendors that we've historically bought our materials from and we sent the the entire build sheet with all the specs for all the different kinds of things out to each of these companies got it back looked at them sent some clarifying details because we realized there were a few little misunderstandings based on our initial build sheet that they hadn't quoted properly and it left me thinking i really don't have a good process for all the boxes we have to check to hit the green button and say yes mm. with a vendor. And that could be making sure we're completely clear on payment terms, making sure we're completely clear on lead times, making sure that if we have any special packaging requirements, that those are communicated, making sure that when we receive their stuff in, that we're prepared to inspect it to mm -hmm. meet what we ordered it as. If I order something that has a specific dimensional tolerance or a flatness tolerance or a straightness tolerance, whatever, when that shows up here, do we have a plan for receiving it and quickly inspecting it and signing off on it? Or is it just going to show up here, get dropped off, somebody signs the paper, and then a day or two later when I'm going over the material in person, I go, wait a minute, this is all jacked up. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's all these things we don't have yet. And part of that is 
we're a young company, we're a small company, and we're not buying that much material. But we've been bit enough times over the years that we should have more process than we currently have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what it is, is like, it's like stubbing your toe. You're like, oh man, that hurt. You hop around, you, you, you say a few choice words, and then you gradually move on past it. And you often just think, okay, well, don't do that again. But you don't actually move the coffee table out of the way so you don't run into it in the dark like that. There's a lot of things like that. And there are certain vendors where we've very clearly tightened down how we receive things from them. Mm. When we receive things from this vendor, we immediately unband the pallets. We immediately caliper all the sheets and make sure they send us the right gauge material mm -hmm. because they have in the past shipped us an entire pallet of the wrong thickness of sheet material. And what happened was that was a spare pallet. We didn't unband it. We just threw it on a pallet rack and when we were down to our last five sheets of the previous pallet, we went to open this one up and then realized that when we received it in two months ago, we hadn't double checked it and it was all wrong. Ugh. And so we were then way behind. We couldn't get more in time. We had to go to a different vendor for a different material and rush it mm -hmm. to have enough to make the things we needed to make. It was an excruciating experience. And so now anytime we get a shipment from that vendor, we unband it immediately. We do a hard count of every single sheet to make sure the numbers are right. And we get calipers out. We measure like every 10th sheet we measure yeah. to make sure, yes, these are all gauging correctly because the stress of, it's just like driving a car. If you are only ever looking 10 feet ahead of your car, by the time you see a problem, you're going to hit it. Yeah. It's funny. I saw an accident on the way home to record this fender rear end. Same thing. But the thing that everything that you mentioned, you have control over that because it's within your walls when you check sheets. Yeah. I told one of the guys in my company, I said, do you realize that all of our problems that we're facing this week are because of outside sources? Because we ask for this, they don't give it back. Like one of the things that's high volume that you mentioned, you were surprised. I don't know if you were joking, but a few episodes back, you asked, I said that we outsource some components. And I think that caught you by surprise. But one of them is our bushings that go into the bottom of our pallet systems because we just do them in such high volume that it's just more efficient to just keep our machines open for higher critical parts. And we don't have IDOD grinding in-house, so it's perfect we send them out. But we've got this one vendor that for the past three or four orders, they've gotten things wrong. Like we order in batches of a thousand, yeah, two or three orders ago. 700 were bad, like the ID was too small or the OD was off or one time it was missing. Now they nailed the OD and ID on this last order, but there's a radius that goes in, into the yeah. ID that just wasn't there. It looked more like a chamfer. It was technically radiused, but it was not functionally radiused. And we're going, okay, that's it. Forget it. We're bringing it back in house. I'm tired of this. So it still comes to us in bar form. We rough out the bushings, we send them the heat treat, they go to OD, centerless grinding, and then we hard turn them on the ID. So it's really op one and then opt two. We'd be doing the first and third op after heat treat and OD grind. Yeah. So yeah, and it's is it more efficient? No, 
Is it higher quality? Yes. Will we ever have this problem that sets us back when we have to reject 700 out of a thousand? I mean, that's like a batting average right there. Yeah. And so I told Jerry just this morning, I said, okay, we're done with that vendor. He's like, oh, I know. And I said, no, we're done, done. No, I know. And he said, look at this. And he pulled out this bin of bushings that we had made in-house our last run. He said, I don't like this vendor. I don't trust them. They screwed up too much. I made the decision to bring it back in-house. I'm like, great. That's why I pay you the way I do. You saw the problem. You got ahead of it. Yes, the next order of a thousand came in and I think they're still counting. We will probably get 400 good ones out of this one, but no, we're ahead of it because we pulled it back in-house and we have control over it. And this is the interesting thing. This is the, do you want to have the ball at the end of the game or do you want somebody else to have the ball? If you have a deadline, if you have a standard, if there's a spec, if there's a customer experience that you're working to maintain, do you want to trust your ability to communicate and somebody else's ability to receive communication and their ability to execute the details or do you want to do it? And that can turn into micromanaging, annoying, bugging the vendor, them not wanting to do work with you. But I remember I was talking to Phil Butterworth, Dr. Phil experience. Yep. And the particular context was involving sending out parts for anodizing. I'd had a bunch of bad experiences with several different anodizers. And Phil is Everyone does. It's crazy. Everyone does. I don't understand if these anodized companies are having that much trouble doing simple flat parts that I machined out of 6061, uh-huh. who are they doing good work for? Yeah, right. What long-term clients do they have who get stuff back from them and are like, yep, it's great. I love it. This vendor is awesome. They're attentive. They package well. Their quality is excellent. Their prices are reasonable. They ship quickly. Like, If my experience with them checked literally zero of those boxes. Yeah. For whom are they doing work that's having a great time with them? Yeah. But what Phil said that I thought was really interesting was, and I've seen the same thing from Paul Akers talking about solving supply chain issues upstream, is that Phil was talking to his anodizer and saying, what can we do? What can we do before we send you parts? To make those parts absolutely as easy and smooth and consistent to process. Because if we need you to have a high batting average, we do not want to be throwing you curveballs. We want to be throwing you a beach ball straight down the middle and you've got a 10-inch wiffle bat and you can't miss. So what can we do to make sure that when our parts get to you, they are the easiest parts you run, that they're clean, that they're not oily, that they're not smudged, that there's nothing going on with them that will make it difficult for you to anodize them properly the first time. Mm-hmm. And so that resulted in them having pretty intense clean and prep procedures in-house before they very carefully package all the parts and send them out. Mm-hmm. And they send everything out in returnable packaging yes. where they've- design all their stuff, laser cut it, foam, whatever it is, so that every time they send something out to that vendor, the vendor knows we don't chuck this packaging Mm -hmm. because they're not sending greasy, dirty parts in random piles of bubble wrap 
where the vendor gets it and is like, okay, well, that bubble wrap is now a greasy mess. And once these parts are washed and cleaned and anodized, I'm not going to want to put them back in this sack of nasty bubble wrap. Yeah. I'm going to have to figure out some way to package them myself. Phil cleans those parts to be sparkling. You can mm. eat off them. Yeah. And then packages them exactly how he wants them returned, yeah. ships them, and the vendor receives them and basically doesn't have to clean them, doesn't have to do anything. They are ready for anodize. Yeah. And that was such a neat concept because I've never really considered doing that. Did you say it to me? But it's never take your dirty car to your mechanic because- I didn't say that. Okay. Yeah. Someone told me that recently. Never take a dirty car to a mechanic because the way it shows up, they see, oh, this guy really doesn't care about his car. And it, yeah. Oh, so another heat treater. Okay. So you've, uh, on one of the videos, we previewed some of our new work holding products. One of them is our Max 4. It's going to be a rotary pallet system for four acts, like for a, a, a rotary. And we sent them, we have, first of all, we don't use wooden pallets. We have two sizes of plastic pallets. Then we line them with two sheets of double wall cardboard. And then that is held down with shrink wrap. So it doesn't move. Then we put our parts on. Oh, there's white foam, polystyrene foam. And then in between them, we cut little strips so no parts touch each other. Even if the, the pickup got into an accident, they would not bang e against each other. These parts, these high value, high accuracy parts, the bases came back on a wooden pallet with nails sticking up out of it. And I'll send you a, a photo on Signal after this. Maybe I'll just post it when we, if we post some stuff about uh, the podcast. But I, it was just so bad and they screwed up. Well, oh, that was the other thing. We made 50 and I said, don't send all 50, send 20. Man, see that lean principle right there saved us because we got probably eight or 10 good ones back, about half. And so had we sent all of them, we would have gotten all the parts back bad. So now we have good ones and we're just going to find another heat treater. And the good heat treaters are backed up, which makes sense. The bad heat treaters, oh yeah, we can throw it in the oven today. Well, you kind of want to think twice about that. So I don't know. <laughs> you can have it good. You can have it fast. You can have right. it cheap. Yes. Pick any two. Yes. So I don't know. It's the same old I feel like, yeah, again, it's just all our problems right now. And I'm not saying we're perfect, but certainly like some of these things we've been dealing with, just you're, I'm just slapping my forehead going, what is going on? Like what? Do you, do you have anybody, do you have anybody in your company who is the person that the buck stops with when it comes to vendor management? Yeah. That'd be Jerry. He's our okay. out, outside services and guy. It's, that's an interesting thing where as we've added more vendors and have purchased more things from various places. We've now gotten to a point where I do very little of our purchasing, and that's how I like it. I don't want to be the person who's reordering routine items. That shouldn't be me. That should be systematized. That should be press the easy button, order the right thing. I shouldn't have to go dig through my emails for the last time we ordered this a year and a half ago and find the part number. None of that. Right. But the process of consistently and clearly communicating our expectations to vendors and letting them know that if anything that we've asked for is unusual or impossible or going to be very difficult or, or cost some additional thing, we don't want to fire a PO off into the dark and then just say, yeah, we did our half of it. We, we sent the PO. The parts will get here when they get here. 
I'm very willing to talk to vendors because I want to make sure that if we ask for something that they don't understand Mm -hmm. or we ask for something that they know isn't going to work, they're the experts in what they do. Yep. Yeah. And I want to adjust to that as much as I can while still accomplishing the end goal, which they as a vendor are supposed to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I've heard on the Business of Machining podcast, both of the Johns on that have had vendor issues. And I think Saunders actually went out to the vendor to say, I don't remember what they were providing, but how can we help you do this? How can we package it better? How can we help you? What Same thing that Phil Butterworth does. And I do think like our most valuable vendors, for example, our shout out to our anodizer Plateronics, I've literally been working with them for 16, 17 years. And whenever we have a new product that goes to them, like I drive out or I email them and say, hey, we know that you guys do a great job. Just want to go over this. And I use that in training with employees. Like I'll say, hey, let's say Alex, completely competent. Hey, Alex, I want to show you this. I know that you already know this. I know that I don't need to tell you this, but for the sake of clarity and accountability, I'm going to tell you this right now. When you tighten the vice jaw, use whatever, this torque wrench, that type of thing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. But it's that type of consistency. We at least need to be consistent. Even if we're, like I said at the top, good leaders over communicate. And where not that, in a disparaging way. Where did that come way. from? Good leaders um, over communicate. It is a Lencioni sure book. Ah, okay. It is, hold on, it's right here. No, it is not right there. It's another, it's, I want to say it's a certain, it's like five obsessions of an excellent executive or something like that. I'm butchering it. I'll look it up. I want to say I'm not actually sure I agree because in a sense, over-communicating is a form of waste. It's over-processing or it can but, be. But look at the downside. If you're like, oh, I should just say this. No, I don't want to over-communicate and then they screw it up. Well, so over-communicate I, I want <laughs> lean principles would say we want enough of the right communication at the right time to achieve the result. And if the risk is, if we fall under, it fails. And if we go slightly over, it succeeds with a little bit of wasted time and effort. Then I completely understand the, it's better to err on the side of over communicating, mm-hmm. but I don't agree that over-communicating is a necessary trait of great leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I've, you know, so I have a lot of experience playing in orchestras and there are certain conductors who over-communicate and they're always trying to tell you how to do everything. They want to control how you breathe. Yes. Micromanagement. Well, it it can be micromanagement. It's not necessarily the sign of a great leader or a great conductor that they tell you everything, that they over-communicate. It can often be, at least in the musical context, it can be about them actually putting the ball in your court and making you handle it. And in business, there are a lot of times when I will quickly check several boxes and say, just to make sure you understand this part's an exception for this reason, here's how we want it done and here's how we're going to check it. If that takes 10 seconds to do, great. That over-communication is 
almost negligible in cost. But if as a leader, I am constantly saying things that everybody already knows, Mm -hmm. I actually corrode my ability to be heard by anybody in the shop because my signal to noise ratio is way out of whack. Right. Yes. Yes. I would definitely agree with that. It isn't just more communication is better. Yeah. Good leaders, I think, where I would think I would agree with Lencioni is good leaders understand how much communication is necessary and make sure to not fall short of that. Well, here, let me clarify it because I don't want to give them, I'll give them away because, but to, to really dig in, like you really should buy the book, not you, but whoever's listening. So it, okay. Here's the perfect title. The Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive. There's the full title. It wasn't five, it wasn't six, it was four. Okay. So number one was build and maintain a a cohesive leadership team. Number two is create organizational clarity. Three, over-communicate organizational clarity. And then fourth, reinforce organizational clarity through human systems. So there's lots of redundancies there. And I think that's, it's, you're over communicating the top line stuff that can be often forgotten, like the why, the mission statement, our values, our vision. Well, it specifically says over communicate organizational clarity. Organizational, exactly. Not the what. Yeah. So the question of who answers to whom for what, when Mm -hmm. is itself a really fraught question. And when small companies grow, they end up with very, very blurred lines. Like we've had a lot of this where a year ago, I was the production manager mm-hmm. and everybody was working directly under me. Mm-hmm. And we clearly needed a shipping team and we needed a sewing and laser cutting team and we needed a CNC production team. And we also needed like office, website, AR, AP, technology, information systems stuff. And essentially, the only structure that people were aware of was the overall structure of seniority based on time. Like making it explicit that this person calls the shots in this area for all these stations and this team of four people, this person calls the shots. Right. And this person is responsible for the quality, responsible for the standards, responsible for the buck stops with them. Yes. Making that explicit uh-huh. involved peeling my fingers back out of a lot of little places where I was tempted to want to over communicate. Yeah. I, I am not a person who naturally tends to say two words and then move on. Mm-hmm. I tend to say two words too many and then repeat myself Yep. again. Yes. I suppose that you could say you want to over-communicate the macro, not the micro. Yes. And put systems in place for the micro. The micro yeah. is the stuff that should be documented. Like what are these screws? What is the torque spec? What is yeah. the bomb for this assembly? Right. And that stuff should be communicated through a process that's available to the assembler and not require me to sit there and over communicate to them in real time. Like, 
Remember, that's a five-eighths inch screw. Yep. I should never have to say that. L- so hey, l- listen to this little snippet of the fourth obsession. Yeah. Again, it's reinforced organizational clarity through human systems. Communication alone isn't enough to sustain your health. You must build the clarity into four processes and systems that drive human behaviors, hiring, performance management, rewards recognition, and dismissal. And yeah, it dovetails into what you were saying there. Like you want to be creating systems. They start with humans. And I would say like this book wasn't written towards manufacturers, but certainly like everything that we do should be documented, proven, reevaluated. So, Well, for me, a lot of the process of creating organizational clarity for myself was actually formalizing job titles, formalizing job descriptions, and then making it explicitly clear to all the employees who they answered to. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because in a company of eight people, everybody can answer to the owner. Right. In a company of 20 people, it starts to get complicated. Mm -hmm. In a company of 50 people, it's not functional. In a company of 100 people, you can't all answer to the owner. It can't work. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, deciding those things intellectually, like, okay, this is how we're going to structure it. This person's going to be over this area. And these seven people are directly reporting to them is only the first step. And the rest of it depends on me then not stepping in and subverting that structure, not creating organizational confusion Mm -hmm. by making an end run around Mm -hmm. the organization that I've just described and stepping, intervening to deal with things directly for which there is a person in the structure who is responsible to deal with it first. Yeah. That is almost verbatim out of the book, Rocket Fuel okay, by G- Gina Wickman. Have you read it? I have not. Okay. Because they literally call it an end run. Yeah. When the owner or the visionary goes around the person that they've structured as the, like, here's my shop foreman, go around them and go talk to an operator. Or, you know, operators going to the boss, kind of an end run. You, you go to your foreman, your supervisor first. So, yeah. I'm not a firm believer that there's no place at all for end runs. We had a discussion this week with my production manager, and it was about a particular thing that I care about as a part of our company culture. Uh And I said, you can talk to this employee about this and explain how we want this behavior to change, or I can do it because ultimately the company culture flows from me. Yes, exactly. The buck stops with me. Yep. And there are certain kinds of things where like, if you're going to dismiss a person for being consistently late to work, you want that to be handled by the person that they report directly to and then documented. And if it needs to escalate, then it escalates. And eventually, if it comes to firing a person over that, you want there to have been a series of steps that got worked through before you let them go. Yeah. You don't want to just, as the owner, fly off the handle one day and fire them saying, I'm sick of you being late. Right. Yeah. But the flip side is for things like culture and vision and the whole overall vibe of the shop, even as the owner, many times that flows directly from me to individual people in the company. And reinforcing that and communicating that isn't actually a subversion of the organizational structure. It's a reiteration of these are the things I care about. This is the way our company operates. This is the way you're going to treat the other coworkers. This is how I expect you to work. This is how I expect myself mm-hmm. to work. 
Yeah. This is what I care about. And that way they understand that anything that they encounter with their immediate supervisor is not that immediate supervisor saying, I don't like the way you do this or that thing, and I'm going to impose something on you. Mm -hmm. They're hearing from me, this is what I expect. And this person's job is to make sure that's happening. That's right. Yep. Love it. Hey, I got to run. Yep. See you next week. Have a great day, Jay. You too.